Hey, Diane, thank you so much for reaching out on our Facebook page and for reminding me to cover clinical care consensus number five that has to do with mental health disorder treatment during pregnancy and lactation. It's a super important topic. Thanks for the reminder. Here's your podcast. Hey, podcast family, welcome back to Clinical Pearls. In this episode, we're going to review the June 2023 clinical practice guidance from the college. That's clinical practice guidance number five. This has to do with the appropriate treatment of mental health conditions in pregnancy and during breastfeeding. This is super important. I honestly had this on my list in July. And then, of course, I got distracted. Other things started popping up. But a Facebook family member said, hey, you know, that guidance is uh, pretty hefty. It's pretty long. (laughs) It's pretty weighty. Um, Can we please put that as an episode? Now, that was my interpretation. The actual message was, hey, can you please cover clinical consensus guidance number five in an episode? (laughs) But I can read between the lines. I get it because it is a whopping document. Now, it's super good. It, it actually clarifies some wrong teachings that we were all taught. And I'm going to explain what that is in this episode. So I'm so thankful for it because it happens not infrequently where things get asked to do X, Y, or Z because that's what historically you're supposed to do. And it turns out that that's not correct. I'm going to explain that in a minute, okay? It also goes through which medications are considered first line, not just in categories, but they actually mention certain uh, generic names, uh, which is kind of unusual because normally they just do categories. But but these two medications for these two conditions that we'll discuss in a minute really do have a lot of safety and efficacy data, and we'll explain in a minute. So very quickly, we're going to cover the main boxes of mental health disorders in pregnancy and lactation. What medication can you use? Which one has this? historically been thrown under the bus and yes it rightfully should but probably not to the degree that it once suffered i'll explain that as well so let's cover clinical practice guidance number five from june 2023 right now Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Now, this is what's interesting because this clinical care consensus came out in June 2023. On May the 17th, if you go back in our archives... I have an episode titled Bipolar in Pregnancy. And what triggered that one was one of our family medicine physicians had called me and said, hey, I've got a a pregnant patient here and she wants her Lamictal refilled because she's using it. Uh, She doesn't have a seizure disorder, but she's on Lamictal because of her uh, bipolar disorder and it's keeping her well controlled. I need to stop that, right? Or am I supposed to refill that? And my answer was very quick. Oh my God, refill that like now. Do not stop that medication, especially if she's under good control. And Lamictal is legit, nothing to worry about. And so in that episode from May the 17th, we went through uh, a lot of info on on bipolar one and bipolar two, which we'll touch on in this episode. I don't know if I shared why bipolar issues or mental health is so important in that episode, but I may do that in this one. Uh, Anyway. Uh, this was on May the 17th, 
And then on June, um, I knew this was coming out. I didn't know it was coming out the next month. So June 2023, you know, the treatment of mental health disorders comes out. And of course, as I said before, I always get this little this little angst like, oh, did I did I just put out nationwide and internationally some incorrect data? So boom, boom, boom. I read it real quick, highlighted, sent it to our team. I'm like, hey, vindicated. Everything that we covered in May the 17th on our episode uh, is it's in this document. How weird is that? Now, I, I didn't sneak out any data from that. I it, it came out, my episode came out before that one, but data is data. So I'm thankful that I give out the right information <laughs> and thankful that we've learned so much. So we're going to cover a lot of this. This is a pretty big document, all right? So clinical care uh, practice guidance number five, it does not have to do with screening. We already know, look, screen for mental health disorders at least once in pregnancy and the postpartum interval. Boom. That's the end of that one, right? More frequently, if there's a history, make sure they're doing okay. Use a validated scale. Fine. And that's for mental health disorders, not disorder. That's like depression and anxiety. So do both of those just like we're supposed to screen for intimate partner violence, home safety, uh, home security, um, and everything else. All right? You got to do it. Uh, I do it. Uh, our residents do it does not take a whopping amount of time. Uh, by the way, we're also supposed to now screen for obstructive sleep apnea. Remember that one? So as we said, you're going to have a, you're going to need to own appointment just for screening things, but whatever we need to do to take care of patients, then do it. And, and mental health disorder has a very, very important role, um, impact in my life. Um, before we get into the data, let me just open this door now. Let's just say it. I'm not sure if I said it in May 17th because I don't remember what I did yesterday, to be honest. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm running around so much. I got with the kids, I, with the with patients, I got the residents who are the, my other kids, uh, the podcast. Uh, I, I've got my wife. So yada, yada, yada. Short of it, somebody asked me the other day, hey, what are you going to do? What did you do last week? Were you on such and such day? Oh my goodness. I barely remember what I ate for breakfast. Are you kidding? <laughs> Is that bad? Is that an early sign of worries? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, and it's not that I'm forgetting, is that I got too many things in my head. I already forgot where I was going with this one. Oh, uh, let me just tell you briefly why, why this really matters and why, and why, here it is. I'm going to let this out right now. Whenever a patient comes in with mental health disorder, something, uh, whether social defiance, social anxiety, generalized anxiety, bipolar one, bipolar two, which we'll explain all of in this episode, and labor and delivery, and, and somebody, one of the nurses who doesn't know my pet peeve, usually one of the new ones says, ah, oh, that is, is, you know, whatever. Use your your little slang name that you want, whatever. Oh, and not meaning any harm, just the way it is. It all comes out in nature. Ah, oh, this lady who's cray cray. Oh, this lady who's she's on all these uh, cuckoo meds. Or and I get it. I get I get how we communicate to one another, and it's not throwing the patient under the bus. Don't send me any text. I've already got some of those. Uh, it, it's not. It's just that's how we protect ourselves. It's it's a part of dissociation. It's not healthy, but you all understand we do that, right? Come on, guys. You all know we do that. But it's not right specifically for this condition. I hate that. I don't, I don't like that. And let me explain why coming up next. I don't want to derail too much. I want to get into what we've got to cover. We've got a lot to cover. But it's important that you know where I'm coming from. And maybe it is or it's not. It's important to me. It may not be important to you, but it is important to me. Because as I've mentioned before, I don't want you to think, oh, I've got it all figured out. You know, my life is fantastic. I do have, I, I love where I'm at. I love my life. I love my, my job. I love uh, the opportunities I've been given. But everybody has issues, all right? Let's just call it what it is. I mean, you've got issues. And if you don't, then 
you're in denial. <laughs> I mean, we all got some kind of issues. I mean, come on. Um, I mean, thankfully, my issues compared to other people's issues are nothing, okay? Because I've got to take care of a patient population that, I mean, I'm like, my goodness, God bless you. I mean, I don't know how you do it. We had an 18-year-old G4 uh, P3 um, with threatened preterm birth recently. Y'all hear that? 18-year-old G4 P3. How? Uh, I mean, I just, so those are real issues, okay? Uh, so issues are, is all a relative term. You get that, right? But I, I just don't want you to think, oh, man, you know, it's rainbows and lollipops. I mean, yes, I, I'm very thankful. I mean, I, I've got a great house. My bills are paid. Uh, my kids are healthy. Let's stop right there. If no one, if I'm not visiting my family members in the hospital uh, or in a grave site, then already I've got nothing to complain about. And I'm not complaining. I'm just like giving you the transparency of why mental health disorder is so important to me. Uh, my goodness. Uh, how did this become an Oprah session? Uh, very quickly. Uh, I remember since I was a kid, my, my mother suffering with bipolar one for most of my life. I, I don't remember a, a, a time when I, I didn't see some event. Um, and so here's what I want to tell you. My mother's now deceased not long ago. Uh, I don't know what is it is. Three years? Is it three years? I don't know. Four years? Anyway, um, <clears throat> I saw the havoc that one person's mental health condition can do. It, it was devastating to the entire family. Jug, yeah, what I'm trying to tell you is, yes, I, I, I get, look, I get frustrated by these patients as well. They're super hard to care for. Trust me, I lived with one. They don't take their meds. Trust me, I lived with one. They have issues. It, they're, they're non-compliant. And, and it's heartbreaking to me. I, I, I'm just letting you know. I don't know if, Mike, you can edit this out. I don't care. I'm just, I'm telling you like it is because I'm tired of facading. And everybody knows this. It's no secret. Or We talked about this in our Memento Mori, in our TEDx that I did. I don't even forgot when that was. 2020, 2021. Anyway, you can look that up online. Um, it, it was horrifying. I mean, from junior high, high school, college, residency, when I got married, how many events where we got called where mom's in the hospital again? Uh, all to say, please, when you see these consensus guidance, like all oh, mental health disorder, I'm not doing that. I just refer to psychiatry. There's a person behind this subject and that person is affecting the entire family. Um, it's horrible. Horrible, man. Um, anyway, let's get on to the topic. That's all. All right. June 2023, the clinical practice guidance number five. This is important for a variety of reasons, but more importantly, because the last practice bulletin that dealt with this, y'all, check this out. Look how long it takes for the medicine moves fast, but the paperwork doesn't. All right. The last practice bulletin that addressed this was number 92 from April 2008. Huh? I mean, I'm telling I'm, I'm look. I'm looking at the document here that. Guys, I'm not poking anything at, at the college. Uh, as you all know, I, I have such respect for everyone on there. I'm thankful for the opportunities I've been given, including fellow at large. Thank you very much. Starting in, I don't know when that's starting. That should be starting soon. Uh, is it, I think it's in, is it, it's in the fall. I think it's now. Anyway, uh, so I'm not, I'm not trying to poke anything at the college, but this clinical practice guideline number five, which is June 2023, quote, replaces practice bulletin number 92 from April 2008, end quote. 
Man, I hope so. I mean, we've learned a lot since 2008. Good God Almighty. I mean, it's there's so many things that move fast. Why did it take this long? Um, I don't know. The data has been there, but thankfully it 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 has. Now, if you remember, this doesn't take care of screening. This is, quote, to assess the evidence regarding safety and efficacy, quote, of psychotic meds in pregnancy and lactation. So that's what we're trying to do here, all right? So we're just going to review the medications and why medication, medical therapy is so important. But let's say it right off the bat. It's not all about medicine. So we love to give medicines. I mean, oh, you're ang- you're anxious, here's your med. And that's that's totally legit. But as it's stated in here, don't forget, if you're asked on the oral boards, what is the best way to treat depression or anxiety? It is a combo. It is a combo package. The problem is, is that one member of the combo sometimes is hard to get, and that's psychotherapy, all right? I'm married to a therapist. Isn't that just perfect, right? So, <laughs> uh, my wife is a licensed clinical social worker who does uh, EMDR uh, desensitization for trauma. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not one of her clients, though. I bet maybe I should. I don't think, I think that's some kind of violation. She treats me. I don't know. Maybe she'll put some kind of, some conscious things in my brain to do dishes more. I, I do the dishes. You see what I'm saying? See, now we've, we've derailed again. It's getting worse. What were we doing? Oh, oh okay. So treating meds. So psycho, uh, pharmacotherapy and uh, psychotherapy, pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy. That's the combo that works the best. So what kind of psychotherapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, if it's trauma-based anxiety, then EMDR, desensitization. EMDR is eye movement, uh, desensitization and reprogramming. It's phenomenal. Uh, it is a thing. It's a whole society and my wife does it. Um, so all to say, it's not just medication, but psychotherapy, why you feel that way. Medication can help you bridge the symptoms until you understand why you feel that way and then undo it. Okay. So you, you can, you can cover up the knot with, with a blanket, but the knot is still there until you undo the knot itself then the blanket is only going to be so effective, okay? So just remember, if you ever ask on the oral boards, what's the best way to treat depression and anxiety? First answer is uh, treat it well. <laughs> Second answer is treat it with, with a, uh, in union with a behavioral health specialist because even though we take care of mental health disorders, uh, we, we're not trained psychiatrists, even though, again, it is part of what we do. But we have to know our limitations. Know our, we stay in our lane. So number one, treat it well. Don't, which means don't ignore it. Second, consult your behavioral health specialist. And number three is, is try to fight for um, uh, psychoanalytic therapy, psychotherapy, because it, it's super important, okay? So this bulletin has to do with medical or psychotherapy, but because psychotherapy, this is not a psychotherapeutic or psychoanalysis uh, examination, it focuses on medication, all right? So it's very med-heavy, but remember that there's a counterpart, but because of costs and patients are like, I'm not doing that, I'm not telling a stranger my deal. I I get that. I'm a huge believer in therapy. You all know that because I mentioned it before. Uh, yeah, I know I need therapy. Jeez, I mean, I've I've, I've done it in the past, I, I, and and I just I get busy and I forget. It, it is real. Um, I think we all need therapy. We should all have like a, like every Wednesday morning should be like therapy in the U.S. Don't you think? Like, hey, welcome to Wednesday morning. Here's your therapy. Here here's your support pet or whatever your pet chicken, whatever you want to do. We, I mean, mental health is so bad in this country for a variety of reasons. 
Uh, don't get me started on that one. But but the idea is it's not just a prescription, it's medication. And very easy. All These big topics, guys, are three big boxes, okay? So if you're asking your oral boards, explain to me how mental health disorders get classified in pregnancy. Well, number one, of course, we follow DSM criteria. Now we're at DSM-5, but it's easy. The, the first box is depression-oriented uh, uh, pathology. So that includes either depression by itself, that's called, that's called unipolar, or depression with mania, and that is called bipolar. All right. So the first box, of course, is depression, either unipolar or with mania family, and that's bipolar. Now, bipolar is subdivided into bipolar 1 and bipolar 2. Everybody good? Bipolar 1 is classic mania symptoms with or without psychosis. That's what my mother had. So bipolar one is depression, but all bipolars have a hallmark of depression. It's what's the degree of mania associated with it. So type one is typical mania, at least one episode with or without psychosis. Uh, And then bipolar two is typically without psychosis and hypomania. All right. Uh, So they're both depressive, but one has true mania. Type two is hypomania. We'll discuss that in a minute. The second category is anxiety. That's the second big box. And it's not like, oh, I have anxiety. It's, well, what kind of anxiety do you have? Because DSM-5 lists seven different types of anxiety. And that could be a social anxiety or social phobia. It could be separation anxiety, which my little weenie dog has. Every time I leave the house, he's like, oh, my God, you're not coming back. The world is ending. Don't, don't leave. You're never coming back. That's separation anxiety. Yes, dogs can get anxiety as well. They can have generalized anxiety, just about everything. They can have a severe manifestation of anxiety, which is called what, guys? PD, PD, panic disorder. Do y'all get that, right? So it all makes sense. So the first category is depression-oriented. Then comes anxiety, of which there's seven main types. Uh, oh, and by the way, uh, OCD, which I have a touch of, it's, it's used to be thought it was a type of anxiety, like it was a way to control anxiety. But but now we know that OCD and PTSD are, are, are absolutely separate from anxiety. Now, both of those conditions, OCD and PTSD, can have anxiety components, but they are different criteria. All right. So it's OCD with or without anxiety. I have OCD with anxiety. Um, just to be honest, uh, and then a PTSD again with or without anxiety. All right. So that's anxiety syndrome. And then the third big box is postpartum psychosis. Now, psychosis can happen as part of bipolar one. We already talked about that. Or it can happen without a previous history. We're going to get into all of this, but, but let me just listen to this uh, main fact here that uh, American Association of Psychiatry says, uh, and ACOG reminds us in this uh, consensus bulletin, ready? Most women admitted to hospitals with postpartum psychosis. Psychosis typically happens in the postpartum interval. Yes, it can happen at any time, even antepartum, but historically, it happens in the postpartum interval, right? Thankfully, it's not very common, not like one per thousand, but, but it does happen. And most women admitted to hospitals with this diagnosis do not have a known psychiatric history. Do you get that? Now, if they do have a history, it's typically bipolar one and or previous psychosis. That makes sense because that's a higher chance of relapse. 
Did everybody get that info? Okay, so postpartum psychosis, about one in a thousand, can happen by itself postpartum. I mean, boom, it just happens. I've seen it. It's weird, okay? It's super scary, and you got to get them under control. And, man, I'm just giving all the good stuff out in the middle. Let's just say it now. The reason that postpartum psychosis is super important, not only is it because it is a potential harm to self, but it is a big risk, guides, for uh, for newborn uh, harm. Okay, so postpartum psychosis is a big risk for suicide, uh, homicide, uh, homicidality, uh, and also, of course, for infanticide. So it's because of the harm that can come with this. So it's super important that we get that right. Thankfully, again, it's relatively rare, but it is a big one. And because of those risks of infanticide and suicide or hurting others, for postpartum psychosis, I'm, I'm getting way ahead of myself. This is like on the second page of notes, and I'm on my, I haven't even started my first page of notes. Uh, this is that requires hospitalization, all right? So if you ever ask, how do you treat postpartum psychosis? Rapidly. Do it quickly. Get them inpatient. They have to be observed. You have to watch them. You have to de-escalate because this is really uh, a harm to self and others issue, all right? So those are three boxes. Depressive, anxiety flavors, and then uh, psychosis. And of course, they don't always stay in boxes. Depression can coexist with anxiety. Psychosis can happen in the background of depression and vice versa. But those are the three main categories that we're going to address. Let's put this into a proper perspective. On September the 19th, 2022, just one year ago, the CDC released some very alarming statistics. According to the CDC, 23% of otherwise preventable maternal deaths had to do with a mental health condition. Let that sit in for a minute. 23% of preventable maternal deaths had to do with some form of maternal health condition. That was released on September the 19th, 2022. We need to review why it's important to get this thing under proper control because outside of the impact of the person themselves, it's wild how much we've known, right? We know that that moms with depression and antepartum have a higher risk of, of passing on somehow depression to the child, either by epigenetic changes, imprinting, whatever, even when you control for socioeconomic status and social stressors. We know that. But even more surprising is that Recently, it was published that paternal depression symptoms can also lead to a higher risk of depression to the child. And I know what you're thinking. Well, one parent's depressed. They're in that home environment. Of course, the kid's going to get it as well, right? I get that. But even when you stratify for, for social stressors and psychosocial issues, maternal and paternal depression symptoms have a higher risk of of, of of children developing that. Is that wild? So getting this under control, and the question is, what is it? A choline, catecholamine flare, cortisol a flare? Is it imprinting? Is it neurodevelopmental uh, somehow? Is it the meds? Whatever. It's possibly all of those. We don't have one direct link, but it's very well published that the, the reason we have to get these under control, ideally before pregnancy, is that they, they tend to have an impact, just the condition themselves, an impact on, on future uh, childhood development of these issues. Now, the same thing goes for uh, anxiety. Those who have generalized anxiety disorders during pregnancy, it's not just that it's a quality of life issue, but like depression can lead to 
imprinting in the child uh, and a higher risk of some adverse pregnancy outcomes. Anxiety disorders during pregnancy have been associated with preterm birth, low birth weight, perinatal anxiety disorders, uh, and of course, decomposition, uh, decompensation, not decomposition, de- decompensation during the postpartum interval, right? So these do have true uh, obstetrical implications. Okay, so again, if asked on any on oral boards or by a peer, um, it's important to get that control for the patient themselves, right? Yes, but it also impacts the pregnancy. So uncontrolled anxiety has to be in check. Now that we don't have progesterone to help with preterm birth, th- these are all modifiable things that we can improve on. Yes, untreated anxiety during pregnancy can lead to preterm birth. So let's try to fix that. Yes, untreated or subpar uh, treated depression can lead to exacerbations during pregnancy. All of these things uh, are why it, we need to get these things corrected. And if a patient is well controlled on a medication and then gets pregnant, don't switch them. There's only really one main medication that we're like, oh, we probably want to switch that one uh, before pregnancy and definitely during pregnancy, and that's Depakote, okay, Valproate. And we'll talk about lithium. It's like, well, what about lithium? Well, I covered that on, on May 17 as well. Uh, that's the one that had been historically thrown into the bus. And yes, there's data why it should, specifically because of Epstein's anomaly and cardiac defects. However, it's probably not responsible for those things to the degree that it once was historically thought to have. And yes, of course, if your patient is on it and trying to conceive, so they're there for preconception con- consultation, try to switch it. You try to do that before and then make sure that they're stable before they get pregnant. But if a patient is on lithium and then gets pregnant, it is an indication, of course, to once you do your first trimester ultrasound for good days and look for viability, you do need that 18 to 22 week fetal cardiac echo to look for anomalies. That's true. Uh, and you need to follow levels uh, during pregnancy, so lithium, you got to titrate, you got to monitor levels to make sure that you don't get into toxicity or fall under level of of control. So lithium is very unique. But man, I was going to get into this later when we covered bipolar. Um, but the short of it is, historically, it was thought to be about a four hundred fold increased risk of Epstein's anomaly. Uh, in pregnancy when exposed in the first trimester. And now newer data is like, wow, it's probably not that high at all. I mean, there's an odds ratio of anywhere between 1 and 1.8 to around 2. So yes, it's higher, but not as what it was thought to be uh, before. And there was a lot of conflicting variables with that. So, And you can listen back to the um, uh, May episode that we covered on bipolar. We go much into detail. And, and this consensus uh, practice guideline goes into this as well. Short to say is, does lithium cause cardiac defects? Absolutely, but not to the degree that it was once thought. So, it's, so if somebody gets pregnant on it, it's not the end of the world. It's, 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 it's worrisome, but it's manageable, okay? Because the risks are real, but they are less than what historically they were thought to cause. Just to be complete and to give the true numbers on lithium exposure. And of course, it's not all about lithium in bipolar. There's a plenty of other medications that are out there, including atypical antipsychotics, some neuroleptics uh, that have great safety data. All right. But uh, again, the more contemporary data from uh, for lithium exposure in the first trimester gives the odds of congenital anomalies that is above baseline. Okay, I don't want to minimize that. But the odds ratio of 1.8 for congenital anomalies overall and 1.86 for cardiac anomalies are much lower than that was traditionally thought. So ACOG says, quote, 
these more contemporary data shift the risk-benefit ratio and render lithium a reasonable treatment option, particularly for individuals with a history of mania for whom lithium has been effective in the past, end quote. Wow. All right. So when I trained, lithium was absolutely known. I mean, it was back in the old ABC uh, X, you know, DX categorization of meds. We don't do that anymore. Now it's just uh, medications and pregnancy and lactation. And it just says what it is because everybody forgot what the letters meant anyway. Um, But it was category X. And now it's like, hey, if it works for them and they're willing to accept a, a, a true risk, but an absolute risk that's lower than originally thought and they get a cardiac echo then then this this is okay uh, after detailed uh, informed consent and risk-benefit ratio is done. How about that? But once again, if you're going to be on lithium in pregnancy, you, you should keep the level around 0.5 to 1, 0.5 to 1. Now, the college says 0.6 to 1. I find it easier just to do 0.5 to 1, so... It makes sense, right? 0.5 and then double it. So 0.5 to 1 milliequivalents per liter is a therapeutic level in general for pregnancy lithium levels, right? 0.5 to 1. So how do you measure lithium in pregnancy? Typically, it's a blood draw and ideally taken 12 hours after the dose was done. And you're looking at 0.6 to 1. Now, remember, if they've got some kind of renal issue, lithium is renally metabolized. So you got to be careful. So they've got to stay hydrated. Don't let them get dehydrated. If they got preeclampsia with renal issues, then you got to consider dosing uh, uh, reduction. If they have a huge PPH and they take an acute kidney insult, you got to watch the dose. So remember, lithium, 0.5 to 1. Remember the kidney. And toxicity for lithium is around 1.5. You see, the 0.5 actually works here. So 0.5 to 1 is normal. And then 1.5, it has the risk of toxicity. That's milliequivalents per liter, all right? And those toxicities are generally uh, symptomatic, like lethargy. There's tremor. There's fatigue. um, There's nausea. But it could include, it could progress uh, to to seizure activity, to to neuronal impairment. All right. So remember things that put people at risk for for renal injury uh, that's going to affect metabolism and excretion, like postpartum hemorrhage, dehydration, kidney insults. Uh, avoid NSAIDs in these patients because you don't want to mess with any kind of uh, kidney issue here. Uh, even hyperemesis because hyperemesis can give you dehydration, right? And that dehydration. Uh, can affect a GFR. So they've got to be just doing otherwise well and remain hydrated if they're going to take lithium. Yes, lithium does cross into the placenta. That's why we're talking about congenital anomalies. Um, and so if they ask, hey, will my baby be exposed to this? The answer is, well, yeah. I mean, it does pass into the child, but you having good control is much more important. All right. If there's very high neonatal lithium levels, the baby can have some respiratory distress uh, and hypotonia as it affects kind of a, a muscular function. But the but neonatology can assess for that, all right? And lastly, as we kind of wrap up this whole little lithium box, because I wasn't supposed to talk about this yet. I'm way ahead of myself, but it fit in nicely. Um, that Can you breastfeed with lithium? The easiest way to address this is just to read the little paragraph directly from the guidance, okay? Because there's a lot here in a very small little paragraph. ACOG states, quote, 
Recommendations regarding breastfeeding or lactation in the setting of lithium exposure are controversial. So let's stop right there. So controversial, so some say yay, some say nay. That's where it is. Serum infant levels, the college goes on to say, in infants fed with breast milk range from 10% to 60% of maternal serum concentrations. 60%, guys, is, is not negligible. Because of immature kidney function and the risk of relative dehydration, lithium toxicity in newborns is a clinical risk. That's why it's controversial. The college finalizes and closes this paragraph by saying, quote, Thus, if lactation is being considered, close coordination of care among the obstetrician, pediatrician, and psychiatrist is preferred, end quote. All right, so lithium, while you can use in pregnancy, breastfeeding is a little bit trickier. Uh, I'm very breastfeeding friendly. I That makes me nervous, all right, just because I'm trying to limit as much exposure as possible. We already got the antepartum exposure, which risk versus benefits seems to favor the benefit, uh, but breastfeeding is another thing, all right? So can you breastfeed with lithium? It depends on you ask. Just remember, controversial. Yes, the college goes into other meds for bipolar in this document, but I covered the exact same thing back in May before this document came out, all right? So please go back to May and listen to those. Short of it is, yeah, they're legit. It's totally okay to use the atypical antipsychotics, the neuroleptics when appropriate, but you got to go back and listen to that episode to get all that detail. But the big issue I wanted to focus on here was lithium because one of the things that I had learned has now been undone, that lithium in the first trimester is catastrophic, the world is ending, there's, there's fire falling from the sky, and it can be, that's true, but probably not to the extent it was thought because a lot of those studies had observational bias. Man, I don't think I can leave the whole bipolar thing without mentioning just a a couple of quick high-yield notes. And that's that, as I mentioned in the intro, when that physician asked about uh, lamictal, lamotrigine, uh, for bipolar, my answer was yes, absolutely, okay? It is the preferred option for the treatment of bipolar 2 disorder for reproductive age females because there's a very low risk of teratogenicity and there's a lot of data on it, all right? There's just a, a couple of qu- quick things that you got to remember about lamictal, that if you titrate lamictal, you got to do it very slowly because there is a potential, the theoretical risk of agranulocytosis and Steven Johnson syndrome. That's the one thing with lamictal because nothing is free. Uh, otherwise, Wise, um, it, it is pretty stable, uh, it's pretty safe, and there's a lot of uh, data uh, on it. Second-generation antipsychotics for bipolar are also legit. Uh, some are better than the others. Uh, the, the most typical uh, is something like uh, quinapine, all right? So quinapine has a lot of data on it. There's nothing wrong with it. Short of it is, if you do have some concerns about these newer antipsychotics, use your behavioral health specialist, but they do have safety data in it. Or the big issue with these newer uh, generation antipsychotics is that they can have some weight gain. All right, they do cause these metabolic effects of insulin resistance. So just do routine screening for gestational diabetes. It's controversial if they need early screen. Just do the routine screen for gestational diabetes, okay? So these newer uh, antipsychotics for bipolar, there is data. Uh, they're not as much data as the older medications, but they are recognized as, as alternatives, especially if the patient is stable on them. Um, I didn't know how long I'd been talking and I still haven't covered depression or anxiety. So we're going to we have to get to this very quickly because 
wow, it's gotten kind of long. But um, I did want to give that reference about the paternal depression. Because if you thought, I, I get the maternal affecting the child, babies and the mom, there's, you know, psychosocial things that can affect the mother and neurochemistry things affect the child. I get that. But how, why? where's the paternal depression data? Let me give you that reference next. And then we'll get into depression uh, as it relates to clinical practice guidance number five. But But look at this data, which was just released, guys, last month in August 2023. Super surprising. This was a systematic review and a meta-analysis. As you know, my favorite, because that's just a great way to take a look at a lot of data, right? This was published in JAMA Network Open on August the 6th. Wait, sorry, August the 16th. Ooh, eyes got dizzy there a little bit, got a little blurry. <laughs> August the 16th. Guys, you all know when I do, I told you, I've got well, either one or two laptops up. I've got like screens up for days uh, as we're doing this. And sometimes I've got my phone next to me as well looking for notes. So yeah, eyes get a little blurry here. So on August the 16th, 2023, in JAMA Network Open, the title is Paternal Depression and Risk of Depression Among Offspring. I'm not going to go through this whole article. Just the short of it was, this was systematic review and meta-analysis. This took a look at 16... There were observational studies, so you got to take that, right? I mean, these aren't RCTs, uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled, but but still, it's still good for info. Uh, And this meta-analysis showed that parental depression was associated with an increased increased risk of depression in the offspring, but the confidence ratio wasn't all that great, all right? So it's higher for the maternal depression, but for paternal depression, the odds ratio is 1.42 with a confidence interval of 1.1 to 1.7. So I know what you're thinking. Ah, man, in my own explanations of, of odds ratios, man, it didn't even cross two. No, but but it's above one. So it again, this is a suggestion. It's not a firm causation. We don't have that ability in observational studies. But an odds ratio of one point four two with a ninety five percent confidence of one point one to one point seven uh, is is something to consider. All to to say, what's the harm in talking about depression with your with the patient and her partner? It can only help, especially if they both get it under control, because it helps the home environment. Man, we got to start wrapping this up. So very quickly, as depression is addressed in this guidance, remember that first-line therapy for depressive disorders is psychotherapy. So psychotherapy works. It's non-pharmacological. It's the way to go. You got to check that box. But because some people are resistant to that or may not be covered, then medications are also considered parallel first-line pharmacotherapy. Is that wild or what, right? So they're both on the same page, especially when used together. Um, But if you're going to use medications, then selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or as a second line, serotonin norepi reuptake inhibitors are the ones that are preferred, okay? So SSRIs or serotonin norepi reuptake inhibitors for depression are the ones that are recognized and preferred by the college. Now, a couple of things here in terms of medications, because I said that some medications here are referenced in their generic form. Uh, there are two. All right. And I think you know which ones they are. So uh, sertraline is recognized and escitalopram or Lexapro. Those are the two that seem to have most of the safety data. And it's not an endorsement for the, just those two, but specifically uh, Zoloft and Lexapro have most of the data 
uh, that's been around for, for depression and or anxiety. So consider those unless the patient has shown lack of efficacy those, to those two medications. Perinatal depression has been in the news lately, of course, because of Brexenolone, the recent IV-approved medication, and the new Surzuvi, uh, which is uh, Suranolone, the sister of Brexenolone. We've covered that many times on, on this podcast. So remember that there's now an IV-approved medication for perinatal depression and an oral medication, but it's very costly and they do have limited long-term data. Brexenolone went out to about 30 days and Zerzuvi, uh, Suranolone went out only to about 45 days, all right? And these have very specific indications. Even though the definition of postpartum depression is the first year, these were have the indication for onset in the third trimester or within four weeks postpartum, okay? So it's a much tighter labeling for brexanolone or, or uh, zoranolone or Zuvi, but it is referenced in the bulletin. Now, I don't want to leave depression without mentioning something about the SSRIs, okay? Because if your thought is, man, SSRIs make me uncomfortable, they lead to uh, PPHN, uh, persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, and isn't that a big deal? Well, again, I'm so thankful for this guidance because it is breaking down all these myths and, and, and old data that really wasn't there. Yes, in some studies... SSRIs were linked to persistent pulmonary hypertension, okay? But newer data and newer analysis has actually shown that that risk, while it's there, the absolute risk is very, very low at about one to two per thousand additional cases above baseline, okay? So ACOG states, quote, Accordingly, the FDA has updated their guidance and advised clinicians to not alter their clinical practice of treating depression during pregnancy due to concerns for PPHN, end quote. How about that? So if you're asked, hey, aren't you worried about uh, uh, pulmonary hypertension with, with this medication? Yeah, I'm concerned about a lot of things, but not concerned enough to change medication, all right? So the short of it is, based on new data, the odds ratio of PPHN based on SSRI use tends to be hovering around 1.28. 1.28 with a 95% confidence interval of 1.01. So just almost cross that one to 1.6. So in other words, it's an interesting find, but definitely not a strong association. So is SSRIs and PPHN a thing? Yes, but definitely not enough to alter management. Here's the second thing I want to say about this as we get ready to wrap up as we move over very quickly to anxiety. Uh, and that's that I learned uh, something called uh, serotonin withdrawal. Right? Babies went through un- under serotonin withdrawal when they're born, so we've got to lower the dose of the mom in the third trimester. That's not real. Guys, is that crazy or what? Not that the withdrawal... Uh, uh, presentation isn't real, but the term is wrong and lowering the dose to prevent it is wrong. All right. So let me explain this. So what I learned as serotonin withdrawal is now called neonatal adaptation syndrome. All right. So neonatal adaptation syndrome because it's adapting to life outside of the womb without medication exposure. So as ACOG reminds us in the bulletin, this is a a whole bag of different symptoms uh, that can include irritability, restlessness, tremors, hyperreflexia, hypoglycemia. So there is some metabolic component there. 
And and yes, it can lead to seizures. I know that's scary, um, but that's on the extreme end. Neonatal adaptation syndrome typically emerge within the first few days of life, but then resolve by two weeks, okay, by two weeks. Fluoxetine or Prozac and paroxetine Paxil have been implicated more commonly in neonatal adaptation syndrome, all right? So two meds that you may not want to use as much unless you really have to because they're doing well is fluoxetine, that's Prozac, and paroxetine, Paxil. So Prozac and Paxil, Prozac and Paxil, most likely to give neonatal adaptation syndrome, but use it if you got them, okay, if you need to. Otherwise, that's why other SSRIs like Lexapro and Zoloft were discussed. Everybody good? All right, so there you go for neonatal adaptation syndrome. The whole idea of decreasing the dose in the third trimester to prevent this from happening is not legit. How about that? According to this guidance, quote, observational data suggests that these changes in dose are not associated with neonatal adaptation syndrome risk reduction. Moreover, tapering antidepressant medication increases the risk of symptom relapse. So the college goes on to say, discontinuing or decreasing the dose of antidepressant before delivery to reduce the risk of neonatal adaptation syndrome is not recommended in clinical practice, end quote. Wow, I trained with that, guys. See, isn't that exciting that medicine moves fast? Oh, you're on an SSRI. We've got to decrease your dose. That's a great way to make them flip. Don't do that. So I'm just trying to prepare you if somebody asks you, do we reduce the dose? No, not necessary. Fine. Now let's tackle anxiety very quickly because it has a lot of similarities to the depression information. All right, podcast family, we're in the home stretch. I'm about to cross that finish line. Here we go, because it seems like I've been talking forever. I don't know how long this is going to be, by the time it's all edited, and if Mike cuts out my Oprah session. But uh, here, very quickly, as we talk about anxiety, as I said, very similar to depression, so we don't have to memorize a lot of different meds here, because it's nice that the same med categories work for depression and anxiety. Nice. So Haycock says, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors first line as psychopharmatherapy or serotonin norepi reuptake inhibitors. The exact same recommendation for depression fits into anxiety. And it says that if they haven't been on a med, then try, guess what? Zertraline or escitalopram. So Zoloft or Lexapro. The same ones that we just discussed. Isn't that nice? So yes, SSRIs or SNRIs are big for depression and for anxiety. And if they've never taken it, Zoloft or Lexapro are, quote, reasonable first-line medications, end quote. Of course, ideally in the background of psychotherapy. You know, we can't leave the topic of anxiety without talking about benzos. Remember, benzodiazepines are not first-line by any means or second-line. And the reason is because of their abuse potential and their side effects. However, if a patient is having an acute anxiety attack or a panic attack, then benzos may be used as an emergent medication to bring the patient down safely. So remember that benzos, while definitely not used for maintenance therapy for anxiety, are okay in very restrictive conditions or to bridge a patient who's very um, uh, uh, dependent on medication until the serotonin-based options kick in. Now we've covered all the main categories. And if you're thinking, hey man, what about psychosis? We did that. We covered psychosis when we touched on bipolar. 
So that's already kind of built in there. So I hope you found this helpful. Let's bring this to a wrap. Man, isn't that interesting? I don't know about you, but I, I mean, when I saw this come out and when we did our uh, our May episode, I learned a lot. Because I was like, wow, that's lithium. It's, it's not that bad. Yes, it's linked to something. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to make it seem like I'm, uh, you know, I want to put lithium in everyone's drinking water. No, I don't know. For some people, I do. I think I need some too. But anyway, so it's not as bad as it was once thought. Uh, neonatal adaptation syndrome is now serotonin withdrawal. It's important to know these things. It's important to know which medications are considered first line. Super, super important. Uh, so I hope you found it helpful. All right, podcast family. Thank you for being part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. <laughs>